0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast series. My name is Asia Darbinian and I'm currently a PhD student at Stressler Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University. With us today is Nora Narcissian, who served as faculty and administration at Harvard University from 1981 to 2005. She holds a PhD from UCLA in the culture and history of medieval Europe and has authored a number of books. Among those are Against All Odds, published in 2004, and Worthy of Honor, published in 1995. Today we're here to discuss her most recent volume, published in 2016, entitled The City of Orphans, Relief Workers, Commissars, and the Builders of the New Armenia, Alexandropol Leninakan, 1919-1931. Hello, Dr. Narcissian. Hello. In recent years, a number of books have been published on topics related to history of Armenian genocide and humanitarian responses to genocide. Keith Watson Powell's Bread from Stone, Michel Toussaint's The British Empire and the Armenian Genocide, among others, Your volume, The City of Orphans, focuses on one specific geographic location, Alexandropol, that is Leninakan during the Soviet period and currently Gyumri in northwest of the Republic of Armenia, and a specific subject, that is orphan care. So my first question is what motivated you to choose the Volpakarak, or the Orphan City, for your research project?
1: Well, it was actually quite by accident. Uh, it wasn't a choice that I made deliberately. I was in Yerevan um, in the summer of 2012, and a friend of mine said, you know, there's this really interesting orphanage in Gumri. do you know anything about it? And I said, no. He said, well, you know, do you think you might want to write about it? I said, uh, no, it wasn't my area. I'm a medievalist, wasn't really focusing on that at that moment. But uh, he said, well, why didn't you think about it? I said, all right, I don't have time to go visit Gimbri now, but I will. I will when I get back to Cambridge. I'll do some preliminary work and see what this institution was about. So when I got back, I went to the Widener and uh, spent a couple of weeks just looking through the holdings, the material. I didn't want to look at uh, secondary literature. I like working, I prefer, and I love working with archives with original primary sources. I spent some time and I found some interesting stuff. So it was enough material that I decided to go back a couple of months later. I was back there in October, went to visit Gyumri, and I'll never forget my first impression of those somber gray barracks that encircled the city. They're still there. That's where the orphans were. That was what was called an orphanage. And I decided, yeah, I really want to do, I want to look further into this. So I went back and I back to Yerevan. I started doing some work at the Genocide Institute and Museum. They were very helpful. I worked at the National Library with you know the original material, and then I made my way to the archives. So at the National Archives, uh, there's this room where you have to register at the entrance. So I, I went in there. And uh, there were three women sitting there and wanted to know what, what, what was I doing there. So I said, well, I'd like to write a book about this orphanage or this place. One of the ladies said, okay, fill out this form. I filled out the form. Couldn't do it in Armenian, but she helped me a lot. And then there was this one question. The question said, what exactly, what is your, the theme that you're going to pursue? And I tried to explain this to the very nice lady who was helping me, but it didn't come out right. And finally, in exasperation, I said, look, I want to hear their voices. Can you help me? I want to know what happened in there. I want to understand why you needed all those barracks, all those uh, huge structures. So she looked at me, she said, okay she answered uh, that question and I was on my way on a journey that unfolded in ways I never expected or anticipated. I didn't stop till 2015 December when I finished the final version. About two and a half years or so of going back and forth to Armenia, going to archives, in New York, the Na- uh, Rockefeller Archive Center, plus, of course, the Genocide Institute and Museum and the National Library held so much information. I I was totally uh, surprised and didn't leave that world till the English version came out. So it actually happened quite by accident. I wasn't intending to write it, one thing one aspect uh was important i think was important in my in my decision besides the fact that it was a fascinating fascinating uh, topic was that i grew up with stories of orphanages of an orphanage the one in biblos the torch notes point
0: yes please tell us about your grandfather yes your uh, he was a teacher. Volume also is dedicated, right? To yes. Him.
1: yes. <laughs> he was a teacher there and my grandmother, I think, was also a teacher, but certainly she managed some of the orphans. They had separated during the deportations and ended up individually at, at the Bird's Nest Institute. They stayed there for several years and I think 26 or 27 when Bird's Nest closed down and then they moved into the city. So my grandfather was a graduate of Yale University. My grandmother was a graduate of the American College in Marash. I used to hear stories. They used to go for reunions. They used to go, uh, they used to talk about so and so. When I went there in 2000, in the year 2000, um, there wasn't much interest on the part of uh, the personnel there. And so I didn't think I would get any assistance, any direction. Um, and I just left it. So when this opportunity came, although this was a on a totally, totally different scale, and, and I liked the topic, I realized there was so much that I could work with. I decided to do it. I still didn't know I would come up with 600 pages.
0: Let's talk about how this <clears throat> volume is different from other texts on orphans and particularly on Armenian genocide orphans. Mm. Could you tell us more uh, about your approach to this crucial topic and the novel questions you raise in your book?
1: True, sure, this is about orphans, but my approach And in my mind, as I was putting the material together, I was working with a city. A city that was established, and I'll go back to that in a minute. It was established, founded, filled with a community of people. In fact, uh, several communities. And then it closed. In 1931, it was no more. The city was there but the inhabitants had changed. So you have this static permanent structures, their barracks, about 170 barracks was the original number in, distributed in three military posts, the Kazachi, the Zereski, and the Polygon. So those are the permanent structures, still there, and the Polygon is now occupied by the Russian army. Those barracks were actually w- were established to house the soldiers of the, the Tsar. And uh, Alexandropol was built, but that's a whole different story. I cover a little bit of that in my first chapter when barracks were transformed from barracks to orphanage. They were there to accommodate about 90,000 of the the Tsar's dragoons and Kazakh Kazakh soldiers and infantry. It was an outpost. Alexandropol was seen as an outpost by the Tsar. And so it needed these barracks and very well equipped with all the military arsenal that an army needed. Then there was the Russian Revolution. And... The Soviets or the, the Bolsheviks didn't want to have war with anyone. The soldiers were recalled. There was a mass exodus. Within a few months, the soldiers abandoned the barracks and left. There are some accounts, eyewitness accounts of how they abandoned and how left they left. A few months later, those barracks were filled by refugees coming from Western Armenia. There were also the Armenian soldiers and fighters who filled these these barracks, especially the Kazachi, I think. And then there was the orphans. The well, it's nineteen nineteen is when we have the mention of the city of orphans, just beginning. When Colonel Haskell, when the American military, together with Near East Relief which at the time was called something else, but by nineteen nineteen, August it was near East Relief. They decided to collect all the orphans into one area. There was more than about a hundred orphanages in the country at that time. It was like they had grown like mushrooms. They had been growing since nineteen end of nineteen fourteen, early nineteen fifteen, but grew more and more and it's Various times the people who had started the orphanages couldn't pay, couldn't take care of the orphans. The situation was really, really bad. So American missionaries came at first, nineteen 1917, I think by Reverend Reynolds. Then eventually uh, Haskell and the American military came, and uh, together with nearest relief, the decision was made to. Collect all the orphans from the one hundred or ten or so orphanages to the northwest of the country and to have them situated in Alexandropol. This was not done without difficulties. But to answer it going back to your question, so in a way it differs. It was different in my mind, first in terms of the numbers that eventually had. Twenty-five thousand, but I think if you were to count the deceased, it would easily reach forty, forty-five thousand. Several thousand would died for in various circumstances. So, the the sheer by sheer numbers, this is different. The largest was the Aleppo orphanage in the Middle East, that was also run by nearest Relief, but there was I think six or seven thousand, and this the, you know it was also known as the largest orphanage in the world, in the West. That's what it was called. It also had, by 1921, the first children's hospital in the world. It was established in this orphanage, in the Seversky, in fact, which was primarily treating trachoma patients. So in terms of numbers, in terms of the location, you you have to imagine, I don't know if I can. I've tried very hard. These children came from Sasun, Mush, Erzrum. They grew up in small villages, large villages, by brooks, by gardens, in ancestral homes. They were very, very different from those barracks. And they're brought to these somber gray uh, structures where they were to spend many, many years. But there was an, a very interesting community there, community that consisted of men and women from different parts of the world. There were the Americans, the Brits, there were the Armenians who came from Western Armenia. These were the teachers, the uh, carpenters, uh, the washerwomen, the professional, and unprofessional and menial workers, thousands of them, about forty-five hundred of them, catered and took care of these children. The American presence was more in the administration. That's where the decisions were made, uh, and they had really not that much in the beginning, not that much contact with with the children. The children were in contact with the Armenian teachers or Armenian uh, managers of the orphanages. But there was another difference. As a city that that lived, that survived for about 11 to 12 years, it intersected with various historical periods of Armenia. It comes about, it is established during the First Republic. There are issues. There are problems that they're trying to solve. The problem here was people like Ernst Yarrow, who was the, the head of the organization in the Caucasus, was very diplomatic and very gentle and very nice, but he had his idea, as did Near East Relief, as how to raise these children. Not just the education but their upbringing was the big issue. How were these children to be raised? The ministers of education and so on of the First Republic were concerned that they would be brought up not as Armenians, but as Protestants, as Americans, uh, devoid of any Armenian soul or Armenian feeling. So there was an effort on the part of the ministers Minister of Enlightenment to to somehow change that, to get Yarrow to understand that. But Yarrow did not see it at all. In fact, at the end, he threatened to leave if that continued. The concern here is that, and I can understand it from the point of view of the Republic, you have a large percentage of your future population in these kids, but they're isolated from the rest of the population, they have they are not in any shape or form in contact with the collective outside. Their minister was concerned that they would not have an, an Armenian upbringing, but the debates there didn't get too far because of the the collapse of the empire of the republic. The Americans left. Kazim Karabekir arrived in Alexandropol with the army. The Americans had left for Gars, which at that time was under, uh, under Turkish rule. The children were left there. They had provisions for a month or two, and it wasn't clear what's going to happen to them after that. Gars, where also the American nearest Relief had established an orphanage of about 10,000. They, they were there, but they asked for protection from Kemal Atatürk and received it, except by January, early January. Kazim Karabekir demanded that the Americans take all the children and leave Gars. This was where the largest, I think, number of uh, deaths occurred. No argument would change Karabekir's mind. So in the middle of winter, in the months of end of January, I think February and March, those children were put as one Near East Relief worker, she was an American woman from New York, uh, described in a letter to her mother, those things, they were packed like sardines in a can, only worse, she wrote. So these children were sent to Alexandropol Along with the Armenian workers there, of the 10,000 orphans, 6,500 arrived. The bodies were thrown out of cars, of uh, wagons, and uh, to prevent infection. But whoever arrived, and then after their arrival, there were further deaths of several thousand. Because the children had really suffered... So there's this, the City of Orphans as an institution, it's also a physical setting. So my approach was to look at this whole thing as the City of Orphans, a place where Americans lived, Americans administered, Armenians, mostly Armenians, were uh, the caretakers, the teachers and so on, and the center of their attention was, or as one person said, uh, the excuse were the orphans. So what do you do with these orphans to educate them? Once you heal them, you feed them, you realize, of course, that at the age of 16 and 17, they're going to leave the Mm -hmm. orphanage to, to join the world outside. So that's where the concern had been by the ministers of the Republic, that they would be alienated, they would not be Armenians once they left. But those arguments, those problems, those things, we just came came to an end when the Republic collapsed. The next thing is the Soviet, the Bolsheviks. And things really pick up with the arrival of Miasnikian and his entourage. And uh, that's one of the most fascinating aspects of the City of Orphans, the cooperation between Miasnikian and his commissars, all very tolerant, middle-of-the-road Bolsheviks and the Americans.
0: Yes, please, That's that actually uh, was, was the question. next question I was going to ask. How was this even possible, this remarkable work of Americans and Bolsheviks in territory of Soviet Armenia, how was right. this possible? Well,
1: in the early years, I, mean, I I was surprised, and everybody in Armenia is surprised. But the documents are there. That's it. I found those documents in those the correspondence, and the national archives in Yerevan. The kind of hospitality they enjoyed, the toleration they enjo- the Americans enjoyed, they wrote about this to headquarters here, and Yero, in fact, said we are far better, far better off now than we were during the Republic. They were given whatever they wanted. There was a wagon, special wagon, that was given over to Near East Relief, especially for them when they traveled to Tiflis, to Batum, and so on. So it was, uh, you know, they were treated like kings. And they realized it they they appreciated it, and it was at this time that the largest contributions began to arrive in in uh, Alexandropol. There was so much excitement, and it stayed like that for a while
0: That coincides with all the fundraising campaigns in the United Huge States campaigns, right. that were all raising the photographs millions of that, that you see.
1: Where from 1921 to 1924,25.: Exactly. That's when Miasneyan is killed. Lenin dies. Stalin comes onto the scene. And very gradually, with uh, the growing stre- strength of, uh, of Stalin, you see lack of toleration and the antagonism between the mm-hmm. American nearest relief. And the Soviets. So these are the the three reasons, three main reasons why I think it's very different uh, as an institution from the others. And the way there was so much material that the way I approached it was to look at it, as I said before, as an institution, as a physical setting, which whose existence coincided or intersected with different states, t- stages of the history of Armenia.
0: Right. As you write in the book, the relief activities of Near East Relief ended in June of 1930, and many of the employees from locals, they were jailed or exiled to Siberia. Moreover, you assert that even discussion of Near East Relief's work afterwards was dangerous. So my question is, uh, does this explain the lack of general knowledge among ordinary Armenians in Armenia about this tremendous humanitarian work of nearest relief for the orphans in Alexandropol.
1: I think so. I think so. Even in Alexandropol, you know, you walk, walking around or you talk to people, they know what this was about. And also they see those barracks every day of their lives. Right. But... What they didn't know was the intricacy and the extent to which this was such an important institution. And I think that was in large part due to the efforts, Stalinist efforts, to dissect and degrade the memory of Near East relief. That's that's part of it. And it was dangerous, from what some of the survivors said, to talk about Near East Relief, or the Americans, or to even intimate any association with them. So in Gyumri, there is memory. It's not a full memory, because they didn't know. And nobody was going to tell them how much work the Americans had put in. You know, they weren't always the best of teachers, they weren't always the kindest, and they did beat up the children. Not all of them, but there were for you know various reasons, yeah. but in Yerevan, some people know about it. but the fact is that these kids who later became famous writers, artists, wrote about their whole background came from their lives as orphans in this in this place, and so There aren't as many people. There are some, but not many people who knew about it. And it's tough to accept it. It's tough to accept that so much of your parents' generation or grandparents' generation lived under such circumstances. And I think Armenians, and rightly so, want to move on, want to move forward.
0: While talking about memory or lack of memory, about silence that followed in the 30s after the orphan city was shut down. I was wondering if you would be willing to share with us a couple of stories that you personally encountered while conducting your research, maybe in Yerevan or in Gyumri?
1: The first time I, I went to Gyumri, uh, like I said, I, I realized that People knew about it. About fifty percent, I was told, of the population of Gumri descends from those uh, barracks. But I also wanted to myself talk to individuals at some length. One instance was that before going to Gumri, I'd been going through this site called Digital Alexandropol, and it has it digi- it, they did digitized. All the old buildings from the Tsarist period and later, and so I was going through each one. There are just several hundred photographs. Then there was this one photograph. It was a very simple little house on Gai Street, just off of the main square in uh, Gumri. And you know, I'm, I go to the next picture that shows the inside interior of the house and there's this elderly couple bending over a group of photographs. They, uh, there's a table, and the photographs are on the table. The third uh, image shows two things. It actually shows the table with the photograph of uh, one of the re- relief workers. From nearest relief, and next to it, a carriage clock, a bronze carriage clock, table clock. So I said, no, "Well, wait a minute. I don't. I haven't seen the clock, but I know that photograph. That was Janet McKay, who was the beloved Miss Maka of the orphans. They talk about her all the time. She was the most popular, and that picture I had seen in the archives." I printed out that page, took it with me to Gumri, and I, I found the address, knocked on the door. There was no answer. And I'm kind of uncomfortable, because here is a total stranger knocking on the door of someone. You know, what was I going to say? So I knock on the door again, and this little lady opens the door. And she says, yes, I said, well, you know, I'm so-and-so from America, and I'm writing a book. She said, what? So I said, here's this, here's this. Is this you? Is this this house? She said, yes. I said, did you know this woman? She says, come inside. So I go inside. It's dark. She's watching TV, obviously. She says, now tell me again, what do you want? So I said, "Well, you know, I'm coming. I'm writing a book. But just tell me, do you know this woman?" She said, "Of course." I said, "What do you mean? She left Armenia seventy five years ago." She says, "Wait." She goes inside. She brings the clock. Oh, I almost fainted. <laughs> Put it on the table. It's the same clock. She says, "I don't have the. I don't have the photograph. They took it from me." I had a huge stack of photographs that my mother had and she left it to me when she died, but some people came a couple of years ago and took those photographs and said they would return it and they haven't. So I said how do you know her? Oh she said, my mother that she brought her mother's picture was Janet McKay's student. And she said uh, Janet McKay went on vacation. She only went on vacation once. She was there almost 10 years. And came back to find out that her student, I think her name was uh, Anahit, her mother's name. This lady's name was Ligan Margarita. That she had been married off to somebody and lived in the city. So Janet McKay eventually finds this Her student finds out she's living in a cellar with her husband and in-laws, and she's pregnant. So she goes back. And when she returns, she comes back with a baby's crib, with food, with everything else, and the clock as a present. Then Margarita says to me, you see, I was that unborn child.
0: She was in the picture.
1: <laughs> well, she was the, her mother was pregnant. She says I was that unborn child. Yes. So she gave it to me. So that's how deeply it had been internalized. Right. As soon as I left there, I walked, I crossed the the square, the main square, and wanted to see the uh, Hovanis Shiraz House Museum. Shiraz, of course, was as they call, an inmate there. I walk in there, and I'm asking, you know, I wanted to look around. And this woman, Narine, was the docent, still is, came up and said, uh, can I help you? I said, well, you know, I'm interested in woman as Shiraz, and I'm working on such and such topic. She started nonstop talking about Shiraz's stories, the wife and her grandmother who was shiraz's sister who was also at the orphanage and she said i, I used, as a little girl i used to spend evenings to spend time at my grandmother's house i loved her a lot and she said there was she always wanted to tell me stories what stories she wanted to tell over and over again although every time she did she got very very sad this was about the day when her she was told, along with a bunch of other girls, that she get up early, wash up, put on nice clothes, and go and stand by the wall. And this was in the Kazachi. The girls were in the Kazachi. So they're standing against the wall. They wait and wait, and they're very tired. Finally, they had been told that guests were going to come. The guests arrived. They tell the girls to stay there. They go into the nurse's room and they start calling the girls one by one. When, it's, when the girls come out, they have this expression on their faces. They're really shocked, but they don't want to talk about anything. So finally it's her turn. She goes in and they start measuring her. The size of the thumb, the width of the thumb, the wrist, the distance between the wrist and the elbow elbow to shoulder the size of the nose the distance between the two between the eyes the distance between the nose and the lip upper lip between the lower lip and the chin the neck legs so on and so forth the kid doesn't know why she's being measured nobody explains anything a few weeks later they're told again to get up early wash up go stand by the wall guests are coming this woman the gray-haired woman as she described her with the measuring stick in her hand comes up again and they start calling the girls one th- and they say the names that we're going to call those girls st- have to stand out and come stand on this side Nalin is Shira's sister is not one of the chosen. She had not met the standards of absolute beauty. She was not asked to go to the other side. The girls who were asked to go to the other side were then all collected, put in trains, sent to Batum, from Batum to America. We don't know what happened to them, but there are several, this is not the only instance, but there are several testimonies about how the beautiful ones and the smart ones were chosen and sent to uh, to America this was this would be before 1920 or up to 1921 because after that the uh Bolshevik commissars did not permit this to happen in fact once the last one uh that was They didn't know that this was going on. The Commissar of Enlightenment heard that a train had just been filled and sent with these kids and had arrived in Batumi. He sent a telegram that all those kids have to return. They cannot leave the country. And he said, the Americans want to help, that's fine. They can adopt a child as long as the child does does not leave Armenian soil they stay here so these are stories that people still remember they have been passed down from generation to generation but i don't know i'm not sure that that's the case in Yerevan right. but in Gumri, it's alive
0: that's where it happened
1: that's where it happened
0: well moving on i will ask you uh, more of a researcher's question mm-hmm because this is a massive volume, and it's a very important book. But I was just wondering, um, while writing it, while working on this project, who was the targeted readership of this publication? Who do you expect to use the volume, and for what purposes?
1: You know, what was my intended audience?
0: I'm not sure I had one.
1: I realized that this would not be something that could be read, you know, it's, it's first of all, it's not an easy read. Mm-hmm. It's the difficult material. I know people who actually finished it, but they couldn't do it all at once, and it, not because they didn't have the time or it wasn't interesting. It was just a difficult topic, Right. and they couldn't take too much of it. it they got very uh, emotional. So in my in my mind I knew there would be some people who would read it but I guess ultimately I wanted the research material the sources to be known to Armenians in Armenia I think my target my in my mind I I thought I would make more of a difference in Armenia than here it's you know people have used it that I've had requests from very interesting countries for this book and different departments in the government. But that was not something I was expecting. Uh, in my mind it was to make available the sources and a, a certain way of looking at things in Armenia. You know, a lot of the writing that came out about the orphan situation in the last 10-15 I know these individuals, they're great people. I've met with them and they've helped me a lot. But the approach is, has always been there. Oh, the orphan is something you pity, you care for, but the fact that this orphan, this thing, is a human being, had an afterlife. What did he or she do in that orphanage? They worked hard. They made that orphanage run.
0: Right? They were not just objects. Uh,
1: see, they, what my intention was to move the orphan from an object to, to a, a subject. subject. Yes. As an object, you give it pity. As a subject, you have to take this as a human being who is a participant of the life of the city of orphans,
0: who has agency and voice. Exactly.
1: So that's, that was my approach, and I think in that sense my approach, I think, differs from the others. I deliberately kept my own feelings, myself, out of this book. For the most part, I wanted to give the facts. This is what the archive, the collective archival material says. You decide, the reader decides how to feel, what to feel. I didn't want to dictate how the reader should feel. Or, th- or what it should think. It's a very complex human drama that took place in the City of Orphans. And that drama is the one actually that's, that was witnessed, that's being witnessed by the reader.
0: On this note, I want to thank you for joining me today and for sharing with details of your books, your motivations, your thoughts about your project, The City of Orphans. Thank you very much.
1: My pleasure.